VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you for joining us. I'm also, you guessed it, particularly excited because Alison Rudd is back with us as well as James Scowcroft, uh, fresh off his trip to Wembley where where he got to see Southampton play and nearly win. And uh, down the line from beautiful downtown Mortlake, it's Matt Dickinson. Or Dico, is it Mortlake or is it Barnes? Or does it depend if you uh, want to no, appear I'm, posh? I'm, I'm East, strictly speaking, I'm East Sheen. But I have, I, I am campaigning for it to be called Richmond Park Village because it sounds posher. There you go. Syed lives in Richmond Park, doesn't he? He owns it, I think. <laughs> there you go. And joining us in a bit, one of my favorite Scots in the whole world, uh, it's Jonathan Northcroft. He's going to be joining us. Uh, uh, he wrote a book about Leicester City's uh, title-winning season last year, and he'll be weighing in on the Leicester saga. Tons to discuss, but we need to start, of course, at Wembley. Gabardini's goal, we've all seen it. Bad decision, it happens, move on. Yes? Qualified no, ref no, Allison? No, let's not move on. Let's not move on. And I do always try, as you know, Gab, to see the point of view of the officials, tough job, etc. And it doesn't do uh, the game any good to keep haranguing them. Except that the one thing you practice a hell of a lot if you are an assistant referee is that there's more than one person you have to keep an eye on when you're looking down the line that there'll be somebody possibly in an offside position but the person who gets the ball and scores if he isn't then the person who's behind him beyond him not interfering with play that is one of the most basic things you practice a lot and to get that wrong in a showpiece final is unforgivable I would say and I have the greatest sympathy for the players and fans of Southampton no for sympathy reason. for Mr. Burt because you call it unforgivable uh, Dicko I'm assuming this is a point where you start talking about VARs yeah certainly on this one the ball flies in you know it's you can easily just say right two seconds tape let's have a look and you know the goal stands there's no great complication to it offside is a tricky one because uh, and we could get into a long detailed conversation about why how far you pull the game back or do you don't want the situation where linesmen are just allowing the game to go on in in the, the sort of belief that the game may be called back by a video official. So, I mean, this is one of the sort of grey areas of video officiating, but here was a clear-cut example where it could have helped. I think unforgivable is a bit strong. You know, it was it was a any linesman at the top of his game is going to think, wow, that was a blooper and feel rotten about it. To be fair, Jacob, we, we the, the protocol has been set by IFAB, every goal, gets reviewed 
So even yeah. though it is an offside, they would automatically they would automatically review it and stuff like this would. Uh, yeah, but there's on, well on this because it's so clear cut. But there are you know the, how far how far you go. You know you say a goal scored. Well, if it's a ball over the top and then the guy takes it and he dribbles around. You know how, in, there is a a point at which there is a grey area of how far how many seconds. You know, you should go back when a key ball was was taken, but that's the reason why we need to crack on with proper full blown experiments and 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 iron these glitches out because there will be glitches. There's no two ways about it. But they're actually going ahead with it, and I, I think it's funny because obviously FIFA is a source of all evil, and we blame them for everything. Anybody here like saying thank you, FIFA? Well done. It's about time. Well, it's about time. But I mean, as I've said before, we put men on the moon blinking 50 <laughs> years ago it shouldn't be that hard to sort of watch a video and say that was a goal that wasn't a goal it's so overdue it's laughable Scully you were there as a fan in terms of United's performance there's especially yeah. particularly the decision I th- I think... to go with Herrera and Pogba and, and a 4-2-3-1 with, with Martin they, they behind missed, they missed Mkhitaryan yesterday missed his sort of breaking out of midfield they were lethargic United they, they, they scored goals at key times in the game, you know, the first goal was always a big goal. The second goal was big. They allowed Southampton to come back in. And you have to say that, you know, the longer the game went on, you think Southampton could come win this, really. You look at Southampton's lineup 1 to 11 in terms of experience and, and whatever it is, what it is. But to go and start this game with Pogba and Herrera as his two in midfield, um, you know, shoehorning in another attacking player like Mata, especially with the sort of week that, that, that Mata had. It looks like a far more attacking Mourinho. Did he maybe pay a price for it in the first half, which is why he then turned to Carrick? Yeah, well, you know, it didn't work. That's for sure. I mean, you know, Southampton were were excellent. I thought people like you know Stephen Davis, who just sort of seems to turn up most weeks and just deliver. Pogba had one of those games where he just didn't seem to quite understand his role. The lack of Carrick. I mean, Carrick obviously there was some injury concern over him, so maybe. Maybe that made sense for why, you know, at his age and Mourinho was talking afterwards about the sort of number of games they played and tiredness coming in, so he would probably have felt that he was juggling physical resources as well. But um, no, it was another game where you looked at Pogba and, and sort of thought, there is clearly a top player in in here somewhere, but um, he's just he's struggling to emerge, struggling to be sure of his role. Herrera got very ratty. Yeah, I thought United were poor in many ways. Southampton outplayed them for long periods. The only thing I would dispute the guys were just saying is that I, I, you know, when they got to two all, there was 10 minutes after that where I thought, wow, Southampton are going to win this. But then it, it just sort of fizzled out a bit. And I, I did start to think United were probably going to pop up and kill them. Paul Hurst did the, um, the team ratings in the yeah, game yeah. and um, with a little, you know, little note of why he gave each mark. Really hard to disagree with any of them. And the total rating for United is 71. And the total rating for Southampton is 80. Which I think proves it was a one-man win, really. Come on, we're going to come round to him, aren't we? We will, but we need to discuss the striker who scored two goals and stole the show. Um, and of course, that would be Manolo Gabbiadini. Someone put a bet on with some bets. We're not going to mention Zlatan for the first who? three hours of the programme or something. We will. I just thought we might talk about this guy before then we talk about Zlatan and segue into Alison is Italian. Oh, yeah, he's yeah, desperate yeah, to talk yeah, about yeah, him. 
Sorry, who Desperate. got the highest rating out of Southampton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the what Italian. Did, what did he get? Yeah, yeah. No, what did he get? No, no since you're not no. disagreeing with Paul Hurst. No, no, no I'm not. Okay. I'm not. But he didn't He also he didn't got a runners-up medal as well. <laughs> I was going to make a point here, um, which was simply about sort of the type of person. You know, I don't know how familiar you are, but I don't know him well, but I know of him a lot because he's been written about a lot. So he's a guy who came through one of the best youth academies in Italy uh, at Atalanta. Great fundamentals. Funny enough, has a big sister who plays football and who's won a player of the year in Serie A three times. He's somebody who's kind of, people said like, oh, look, he's got all the ingredients, but other than one season, um, it never quite came together. Didn't Juventus sign him and then flog him without playing or something bizarre? Well, no, they signed him on a co-ownership deal, uh, which you could do at the time with, with Sampdoria. He was at Sampdoria. He scored like eight goals in the first half of the season. And so Napoli said, well, we need somebody to back up Higuain. And, uh, and he sort of bought the other half. And, um, and he came over and he scored some goals. But then the last two years, he didn't play much at center forward because they had Higuain last year. This year, after Milik got hurt in his couple chances at center forward, did not play well. So he was playing a lot on the wing. So he didn't score very much. Although his goals to minutes ratio is pretty good. But I just think it's pretty remarkable because... When you look at the $15 million that Southampton paid for him, they didn't pay that money because of stats. They paid that money because of old-school scouting and seeing that he is a very gifted player and then taking a leap of faith that his inability to get on the pitch and produce must have been down to something else, and it was something that they could fix. And I don't know. I was kind of impressed by that. I, I don't know if he's even going to be as good as Graziano Pellet, to be honest. He's a much more skillful player. But when you reach 24, 25, you must have played with guys like that, guys who were just a lot better than everybody else or really, really good in training and whatever else, but for whatever reason couldn't get going, couldn't get matches. Yeah, I have. Yeah, and it, it, like it depends. Um, on, you're praising them. You're saying they were really yeah, good. No, no, but you do get training ground players. You get players that look very, very good or, or will have little spells in, in, in their careers. Gabardini's come in. Can he maintain it? Can he, you know, he's at a great start. A lot of players sometimes have those. They get that lift from their move. You know, it's coming to the Premier League. You're on a high. Can he maintain it? Point is, he should have had a hat-trick at Wembley. Yes, Scully? Yes. Thank you. But he didn't. All right. Let's move on to the other centre forward, who also didn't have a hat-trick at at Wembley. What's his name? What's his name, Gav? What's his name? Say it. I think you're on a bet not to say it. I have no trouble saying his name. He's the 21st century <laughs> Cantona. Still not said it. <laughs> uh, according to Dicko. Well, yeah. Well, according to the headline writer. The headline. I never. I, you don't write the headlines as the old, the old yeah. phrase. But no. Well, it's, it's Cantona-esque in um, in a few ways, isn't it? I mean, there's the, the United uh, looking for a, a sort of talismanic leader to um, turn them into trophy winners. Simple as that. And um, Cantona. Helped do it in one era, a different era, admittedly, but Zlatan is certainly doing it here. I mean, it's partly the goals, clearly, it's partly his play, but it's also just something about him. Um, you know, you can see the players, you can see their own sort of awe at him. Um, and when he turns up, I mean, I just thought the way he ran off after he scored the goal, you know, a lot of players, you score the winner in the 87th minute at Wembley, and it's going to be sort of wonderment or disbelief or incredulity. And Zlatan just ran off sort of. Yep, that's what I do. I score the winner at Wembley. You know, this is this is what I'm born for. And I Dicko, I'm going to ask you to speak to do something that that I absolutely love when people do it for me. I'm going to ask you to speak for the entire English media. 
the same way I'm sometimes asked to speak for the entire country of Italy. Why did it take y'all so long to love this guy <laughs> and, and to kind of appreciate what he could do? And um, I'm not saying you specifically, but there was, you know, yeah, we all well, know the expro. I could ask, I could ask our English ex-pro he here as well because he we all did that. He scored something like four goals in his first twenty odd appearances against English teams. I think there were a couple of big nights when he, you know, he didn't perform. Um, uh, and I just think it became a little bit of a sort of running joke almost, didn't it? Um, and it does look ridiculous looking back. I mean, I think that, you know, there were a couple of occasions where I'm sure he, he, he did underwhelm. Um, I was at them myself, so... But, but yeah, I mean... Sorry, did, did Alan Shearer, like, score, like, one goal in his first 15 internationals or something stupid like that? Before Euro 96, he had his he, he had he had a long drought. But it right, was, he also um, scored a fantastic hat trick, didn't he, as well for Sweden against England? But that, well, that was the, that was the moment that changed it all. And and it's Stockholm against England um, was at the Ryan Shawcross night, and and obviously there was the the wonder bicycle kick from about 800 yards. Even those who didn't want to accept that he was brilliant had to admit it. When he was signed in the summer, I didn't think Zlatan Ibrahimovic is a poor player, and on a free transfer, you couldn't say he was a poor signing. I just did wonder whether. At 35, you know, was there still the hunger? Was there still the hunger to compete in the Premier League? And and should United be spending 50 million quid in wages on younger, brighter, long-term options? But um, say even even I can get it wrong sometimes. Uh, a word on Mourinho, because I thought I, I was watching him on television after at the final whistle, and I thought like, a he looked emotionless, and that could just be exhaustion, relief, whatever. He was super gracious. He said the game should have been in extra time right now. A couple of days earlier, the Claudio Ranieri thing, when he wore the CR top, that he'd, I think he'd originally prepared that for Cristiano Ronaldo, actually. Um, but are we seeing a gentler, less in a perpetual state of war, no, Mourinho no, no. this We've season? we've seen this Mourinho before. He does this a lot. He's very good at playing that role when they win. I think he was just trying to. I did ask him afterwards because he did look like someone had just run over his cat. And I did say, um, I did ask him, and he said, "Oh, I'm happy, happy." I, I, with always Mourinho, you know, there's something affected about it. I mean, all that sort of the players jumping around at the presentation um, walk and him sort of slumping over the balcony, like, "Oh, do I have to?" He was. It was a whole message in. This is this is just the League Cup. This is this is regular. This is routine. Um, you know, this isn't what. I want to be pitching for, and so he put on a, a sort of, yeah, okay, big, big deal. Um, you know, sort of come back to me when we win the big prizes. I think that was his affected way of saying, you know, um, this is this has to be just the start. Um, uh, yeah, that 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 was how how I saw it. So you think we're going to see prickly Mourinho specialist in oh, God, failure? Well, all this he stuff. He is what he is, isn't he? he, he away. I don't yeah, know. We'll people see. change, evolve, right? No, he's well. Look. We've seen we see the cycle with him many times. Now I, I think um, I th- Carl Mourinho would um, we'll be waiting a long time for that. The game podcast is brought to you in part by FanDuel. FanDuel is one day fantasy football. You can find out more at FanDuel.co. 
www.premierleague.co.uk. How does it work? Well, you select a team of Premier League players for a single round of fixtures. Uh, So you're not locked in for the whole season the way you are with other annoying fantasy games. You play, you watch, and if you put some money down, you can win money if you're good enough. You can play for free if you want to try it out. If you put some money in, like the Premier League Saturday fan favorite, which uh, I am my producer Charlie entered last week, it only covers a Saturday games, five pound entry. We could have won five hundred pounds, which is what the winner gets. Um, but of course, we didn't because uh, we chose the wrong players. Uh, anyway, uh, you have no doubt you can do better than us. Uh, the way it works is you pick your team. You got hundred million pounds to spend. There's no subs, no captains, just eleven shirts to fill. The neat thing about it too is, unlike some games where you just get points for assists and goals and clean sheets, this actually uses opt the data so that some of the unsung heroes, the Ngolo Kantes of this world, or Scott Dan's of this world can go and get points for you if they play well defensively. FanDuel scoring reflects a player's true performance, whatever their position. Now, here's an offer for you. If you sign up with a promo code, the game, then FanDuel will return your entry fee as a free credit of up to £10 if you don't win cash in your first contest. In other words, you've got nothing to lose. Go to fanduel.co.uk, that's F-A-N-D-U-E-L, .co.uk and enter our promo code the game in the promo code field on sign up and you'll bag the offer. Good luck. It's sort of a weird weekend courtesy of the of the League Cup because um I guess of the top 6 um only Chelsea and Spurs uh turned out and and actually played in the league. Chelsea beat Swansea 3-1. We saw another big old refereeing blunder. Um, we had the VAR thing. I'm assuming everybody agrees. Should have been a penalty, yes. Yes, Billy quite the handball. No, it's not a penalty. No, oh, it's not a penalty. Nice. Ooh, two of you. Explain why it should have been a penalty. Because the ball's in the air. He moves his hand towards the ball and he knocks it down. No, so where, 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 yeah, where, is, a, where are his hands supposed to be? Yeah, and exactly. the ball is about four or five inches away. It's not, that's not a deliberate handball. I mean, it's, it's impossible for Azpilicueta to know how to avoid that in that situation. All right. Maybe he's, got, he's just, you know, he's ju- he's just jockeying for position. He's hoping, you need to have your hands up to do that. Yeah, yeah? you do because yeah. you're hoping to. He's hoping to put Gilfie he's off. To balance. It underlines this thing about the, the video replay is not going to cure everything. It's like the, the Aguero dive stroke penalty against Monaco. You know, you could get ten referees to watch that, and they might come up with with ten different interpretations. So. Um, sorry, is it just me who thought that was a penalty, Dicko? Are you going to help me? Uh, not really. All right. I suppose it's just me and Paul Clement then. It could, it, it could have been. But, I mean, that's different from saying it was. We have a piece in the game about the Spanish influence at Chelsea. And um, I was referring to Fabregas, Pedro, and uh, and Espiliqueta. Um They also include Diego Costa. So, I think it is, it is a slight bit of a stretch. But, Scully, I'm interested in the Fabregas thing because, obviously, this is somebody who, you know, is an exceptional player. But, at some point, he was dropped, and that could have gone both ways. And in January, Fabregas, if you consider, he wasn't cup-tied. He could have pretty much asked for a move or even a loan move somewhere, and I'm pretty sure Chelsea would have let him go. But that didn't happen, uh, and he kind of fought his way back in. Can you regale us with some tales of your own footballing experience of, of those situations? Well, he's probably got two options, hasn't he? Does he move? Where does he move to? Is it going to be a better position than what he's in now? I don't think... Um, well, on the bench. Where, where do you go? Okay, you can come down, but he's playing for a team that's top of the table. He's playing for a very good manager. 
he's living in a city that I think he really enjoys living. Why why would he jump to move? I don't I don't understand. Because he's a thirty years old, he's a professional footballer, uh, only has a couple of years left and I'm not sure. I mean we know why he didn't. He didn't because Conte said, Look, I'm gonna need you later. Yeah. Trust in me, blah, blah, blah. Keep working hard. One day you'll get back in. But the point is, any boss will always say that, right? Bosses always say that. Hey, Allison, you'll have your opportunity. Hey, Dicko, no worries. You know, keep at it. But then you don't really buy into it, right? But for whatever reason, he chose to stay. And now he gives Chelsea another option, one that I think is valuable. Do, against- do, do you not think part of the reason for him staying is that even when he was going through the not getting that many minutes on the pitch phase of life under Conte that when he did come on he always looked good and he always got great reception from the fans good reviews from the people who watch football he would have known and his manager would have noticed that when he came on he did something you know, created a goal or made the opposition really uncomfortable. I think, I think Conte's not stupid, is he? I think games like Swansea's at home, you need a Fabregas. You need someone who think, well, we're probably going to have a lot of possession here. We need someone who can unlock the door. We need someone who can score a goal. And I, I think when you get him playing well and he's fit and he's enjoying his football, he's, he's a quality player, isn't he? He was, he was really good against Swansea. He was exceptional, I thought. He was a, bit, just, he was a bit like a, a slightly... A slightly uh, more flare, flary player than Frank Lampard at his best. Yeah. He did that whole arriving thing where his timing's impeccable. But he, I can't, I, I can't remember the last time this season I saw Fabregas not deliver a great pass. And From, sometimes you don't know who's delivered a pass, and you think, well, I, I know, I know the type of ball that is. It must have been Fabregas. It's do, even from even allowing from what you said, he's had an exceptional season. Yeah. I think options are get, obviously opportunities are limited with with lack of Champions League football, and obviously that could change. Well, that will change next year, obviously. So, in another normal season at Chelsea, he would have, he would have, uh, he would have probably had more games in any case. Yeah, but uh, sorry, guys, it's one thing to have more games; it's another thing to be considered an automatic choice. So, if I'm Sask, I look at my history, I look at my wages, and I look at my status and my ability, and I say, "All right, I should be like Courtois, like Hazard, like Ngolo Kanté. I should be." an automatic choice on this team. I'm not Nathaniel Chaloba. I'm not Kurt Zuma. And if this manager, for whatever reason, thinks that most of the time his best 11 is going to have somebody else in there, nobody would have blamed him if he'd said, dude, I, I, I want to play regular. Blame him, but the same way as, you know, you look at United. I mean, is you know, Mkhitaryan signed has to work his way in the team. One matters, no mug, is he? But, you know, you look at, if you're at a big club like that, you know, the, grass, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, and I think from my experiences, you don't you don't always want to be in a rush to keep jumping clubs all the time because you get that kind of reputation of oh it hasn't worked out, he's moved on. For me, he needs to settle, and they will have more games next season if he knuckles down and he works hard. He's got the ability where he'll play. It's down to him. Sometimes it is Blarney, a manager saying, "Oh, you are useful, you are useful." I think I think in this case, when Conte sat down with him, he would have been able to give very solid concrete examples of why he genuinely does need to be part of the title winning team and they couldn't do it without him and he was able to, he made it persuasive I'm assuming Conte said the same thing to Michi Batshuayi well not necessarily because I don't think you could back it up with with stats and you can with Fabregas all right, all right. I just wanted to praise Fabregas but no, no you know, we all not, want to praise him so Swansea uh, Paul Clements come in he's had some tremendous results I went back and I looked at some of those games, and as much as I really like Paul Clement, and I think he's got a great future ahead, were they maybe a little bit 
fortunate as well. I'm thinking of like the Liverpool game, for example. They were astonishingly good. Liverpool were bad, but you can only beat who you put up against. I don't see how that makes you fortunate. And you get the kick of having a new manager after a really rubbish one. I think Klopp made the point that they created more chances. All right, but that's fine. I think what he has done is made them competitive, hasn't he? And they're going to big clubs now. They went to Liverpool, whether you think it was a fluke result or not. They competed. They competed again on um, on Saturday as well. And if everyone were agreed with you, Gab, which people don't, it was a big um, a big call, wasn't it? At 1-1, if they get the penalty, the handball, who knows? Not to mention that Fabianski made a, an absolute mistake on uh, the second goal. Yeah. Hey, Dicko, are you a... Are you on the Paul Clement bandwagon? As you say, maybe a, a stroke of luck or, or two, but I mean, the fact is that after the Bradley mess, they play seem to know the roles. There seems to be back to a, a, a bit more, rec- well, a lot more back to a recognisable sort of pattern. Um, yeah, there just seems to be a, yeah, just a, an understanding among, among the players that was sorely lacking under the, the, the last regime. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Enough Chelsea and Swansea because it's time for a debate this week. And we're joined by Jonathan Northcroft. Uh, hello, Jonathan. Hi, Gab. Hi, everyone. Jonathan, we, we have you on because uh, uh, you wrote an excellent book about uh, Leicester's title winning season uh, last yeah. year. And uh, you also wrote uh, sort of an inside account of what led to Claudio Ranieri's uh, sacking over the weekend. Um, hmm. Funny enough, so did I, albeit probably from a... By talking to different people than you did, because um, <laughs> I came to different conclusions. One thing that that struck me uh, was that the decision to sack him was made before the Seville game. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think the decision. I, got, I, I can't tell you an exact day, but I think the decision was made after Swansea. Why did didn't they do it then? Well, if I'm being cynical, I'm guessing that they they thought that. The first leg in Seville might just make the sacking easier from a PR point of view. I think they, they may have expected you know, a bad defeat in Seville and then that would make it the end of the European campaign and just make it a little bit easier to do. That's, that's just the hypothesis. I don't know that for sure, so, but that'd be my guess. So that being the case, if they'd gotten really lucky and had won 3-0 in Seville, then what? 
I think they'd still have done it. And I think, I mean, I think losing 2-1 is, is a result that, that, that makes the sacking look bad. That late goal has probably embarrassed the owners and their, their decision. The narrative that's kind of been, been everywhere is that there was an issue with the players. There was an issue with the dressing room. I'm pretty sure Ranieri feels differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that the issue was more with some of the backroom staff he inherited from the, the mm-hmm. Pearson era with whom it must be said he worked very well with last year, of course. From a journalistic perspective, I'm not giving you any secrets here. There's only so many people you can talk to. So you can talk to club officials who kind of give you the club line. You can talk to certain players. Looking at Leicester, I'm guessing there's maybe three or four players who speak with some regularity. A lot of people keep their own counsel. A lot of people maybe don't speak English or aren't comfortable. Uh, You can speak to Ranieri. You can speak to Craig Shakespeare. You can speak to their agents. This is kind of the pool of people who we expect are involved and that everybody's spoken to, correct? Correct. And, and, and even if you're talking about speaking to players, you know, it's a diverse bunch, isn't it? And that less dressing room has got a very strong core, but then it's got, you know, guys on the outside who are significant players. You know, Riyad Mahrez would be one who's not part of, you know, the hardcore of decision makers, the, the guys that drive that dressing room. But of course, he's a very significant player. So, you know, I think it's hard to lump them all in together as one group. And then, of course, it'd be the same for the backroom staff as well. Um, and I, I, I do agree, I think, what you're getting at, that if there's a perspective that's missing at the moment, it might be of that backroom staff and, and what they would have to say. But, you know, backroom staff, they're not in the public eye and we're probably not going to hear from them. Dicko, what's your take in terms of there was this incredibly emotional reaction to it around the world, somebody tweeting, like, you know, about, he's something about how, like, it's kind of like when Bambi's mother died and whatever else. I thought Claudio went a little bit over the top when he says, my dream died. I, I would have thought your dream was winning the Premier League with Leicester and you did that. Well, well I, think the, I think the emotion was important. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a, it's a bit of, well, it's a, a lot of the emotion just because I think the story last year was so you know, wonderful. It was so incredible. And, you know, I was there when they, they, they did the, the trophy presentation. It was one of the most uplifting days I've, I've, I've had in a job. You know, it's within the face of everything we've come to expect from modern Premier League football. So, you know, Ranieri himself was, was such a sort of um, admirable figure last season as well. And I, I think everyone, football fan, just felt, just felt sad about it. Does that sadness make it a sort of scandalous decision? Well, no, I, I don't think it does. I mean, I think you, know, you can see the context in which it's been done. Yeah, this sort of the, the, the day the soul of the game died sort of stuff, I just didn't, that was taking the emotional stuff way over the top. I thought, you know, the fact is that it was a you know, ruthless decision, but made with a certain degree of context. I think the more intriguing stuff that you've just been talking about with Jonathan is just, is the, the nitty gritty of that context Clearly, as you've written, Gab, there were issues with backroom staff, you know, a lot of whom he just inherited, wasn't necessarily sort of c- close to, um, didn't have a long working relationship with. But, it, you know, you can't dispute that there were clearly issues with players as well because some of them weren't working. Um, and most of the time, if a manager loses the dressing room, I think he's probably at least 50% responsible. But on this one, I do think the picture is more complicated because clearly some of those players got very complacent. You know, they'd won the Premier League and they weren't excited by the idea of scrapping for 13th or 14th. And some of them got fat contracts. They all got fast cars. And, I, you know, 
it's not as simple to say as they all got complacent, but I think undoubtedly some critical players did. Just a word on the the reaction to Ranieri sacking. I travelled to and from Seville with local journalists and hardcore fans, and the closer you are to the club, the less emotional they feel about it. That yeah. there was um, a lot of there's a lot of feeling around the region that everyone seemed to know that Ranieri had started to lose the plot slightly, that he was an hour before kickoff saying, oh, like, we're not going to do what we did in training, we're going to do something different. And that sort of stuff leaks out. So I obviously spoke to the local journalists and the fans and they were saying they would quite happily take him being sacked if it meant them staying in the Premier League. They'd quite happily take not winning the Champions League final if it meant them staying in the Premier League. It's a fairy tale to people who are outsiders and don't have to live the life of a Leicester fan but when you're there and watching it slowly crumble you will grab at what you can grab and I think the closer to the core you get the less emotional it was. Sko you must have been in situations where a manager gets sacked and the players get the blame now notoriously I think on most occasions you were generally the the ringleader undermining the manager (laughs) um, planting stories leaking to them I'm just kidding how did it ever really annoy you? Like saying, like, you know, yeah, we could have done better, but you know what? We tried our hardest and we're not at fault. Have you been in those situations? I have. I've seen dressing rooms get the manager the sack. I've seen them a couple of times, actually. Um, Basically, the manager hasn't been strong enough. And I I do have a little bit of inside knowledge what's going on at Leicester. I think the players are taking a lot of the brunt for uh, what's gone on. Not quite sure that's, um, as you've you've mentioned, is, is entirely true. You know, once that cancel, whatever you want to call it, sets in, it's very, very hard to stop it. And I think if you look at Leicester, I think Leicester went into the season here thinking, well, we're not going to win the league and we're not going to go down. And the mentality that approached the season was all wrong. And I think once those players became complacent, I think it's almost impossible for a manager to to do it. This is where you need a really strong manager who is not frightened one little bit to think, do you know what, last year you were fantastic, but I'm selling you now, off you go. Hey, that brings a good point, Johnny. I want to bring it back to you because one of the architects of, of Leicester last year who got endless praise was uh, was a man named, named Steve Walsh who yeah. was a chief scout, re- sort of recruitment guy. Um, he, of course, brought in Riyad Mahrez and N'Golo Kante. Um, he's gone now. Mm. What I find interesting is I, is I look at Leicester's recruitment this summer and I see so many mistakes. In a lot of the mainstream reporting... A lot of people were happy to go and mention, oh, Ranieri spent 80 million, ha, ha, ha. Which is kind of idiotic because I think you should look at the net spend and the fact that they lost N'Golo Kante, which slightly reduces that. In fact, their net spend was around about 10th or 11th in the Premier League. But leaving that aside, Musa was was a Steve Walsh shining because they, they nearly signed him the previous January. And obviously, he hasn't worked out at all. The defender, Hernandez, who arrived on a free transfer, was another Steve Walsh shining. Hernandez had one top flight season under his belt in La Liga and he's in his mid 20s so you know it's not like he's an, he was an up and coming guy they didn't sign in unless I'm forgetting somebody they didn't sign any other hey, defenders Mendy. Mendy was another Steve Walsh signing for sure Slimani who I think is, is a decent player mm. but they paid through the nose for him I and mean, he was clearly you know an emergency last second buy is, did somebody somebody kind of getting away scot free here like if Steve yeah. Walsh sent them on their way, I mean, Rudkin, I guess, is the director so, of football. I mean, what? Yeah, I, I mean, on, so on the recruitment, it's entirely right to, to say that I think the summer summer signings 
were pretty much all Steve Walsh targets, and not just Steve Walsh, but the recruitment system they had in place, which also includes, you know, quite a, a sort of heavy use of stats. So, for example, Hernandez was signed, I think, because he had the most interceptions of any defender. And Shai, if I jump so, in on that point, am I also right in thinking that they had some stats analytics guru who left to go to, some, to go to Arsenal? Is it Wigglesworth? But, I'm thinking. They actually had two, yes. Yeah. So Ben Rigglesworth left for Arsenal. Actually, the, the guy that really set up that department, Rob McKenzie, left before Ben Rigglesworth to, to Spurs. So they lost two sort of main, I, I guess, sort of stats geniuses, if you want to call it, in that department during the, the, the title season, which, which, which has probably hurt them long term. Eduardo Masia took over as Steve Walsh's replacement, but after the summer transfer window. Now, he is a Ranieri man. But I don't think he can really be held accountable for Rafa anything. Benitez man, too, for those who know their history, formerly yeah. at Liverpool. Yeah, and they, they worked both Benitez and Ranieri worked at Valencia with them. So, so that's the background. And you can hold them accountable to a certain extent for January, but not the summer. John Rodkin would be the one that, that, that closes the deals. And I think Claudio had concerns that a proper experienced defender wasn't brought in. And they tried to do a deal for several of those, including Michael Keane, um, okay, he's young, but, you know, a Premier League defender, and, and they couldn't close that deal. So I think, actually, when you look at Steve Walsh and his departure, the, the more significant thing is what it did to the dynamics uh, of the, the, the management team. Last season, you had Steve Walsh, you had Craig Shakespeare, and then you had Ranieri and, and, and uh, Benetti. So you had a, a lovely balance between the past and, uh, and, and the sort of, you know, the, what Ranieri and his team brought. And it balanced out, and it balanced out as far as the dressing room was concerned. But you've got to remember that the core of that team was put together by Nigel Pearson, Steve Walsh, and Craig Shakespeare. So in troubled times, emotionally, they went with, it was better before. We, 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 you know, we want Nigel back. And I think that's what left Ranieri isolated. Matt's entirely right to sort of say that what happens in this situation for a club is that you look at a broken situation where a dressing room no longer believes in the manager or is not responding to his motivation, and the easiest thing to do is to sack the manager because you, you literally can't sack 20 players and start again. And that's the reality that, that's befallen Ranieri. And Alison's right as well because what I've picked up from Leicester is that they've struggled to deal with the, the world's expectations. They've struggled to be the Cinderella club that everybody wants to behave in a, in a certain way, that everybody invests themselves in and, and thinks that they can represent something different in football. And at the end of the day, Leicester are just another provincial football club who are trying to survive in the Premier League. They couldn't sort of try and do the honourable, the right thing um, because of their new fans and all that kind of stuff. They just had to look at Premier League survival. I do want to make a point about the players, though, because I, I think their role in this has been misunderstood. You know, they, they haven't gone to the owners and said, we need this guy sacked. What, what we've got is ownership at Leicester who have got a very close relationship with certain players and, and a long-term relationship with those players and also the backroom guys that we've been talking about. Because they've been... You're talking about what, Craig Shakespeare, Casper uh, Schmeichel, yeah. and Jamie, Jamie Vardy, and but, Andy but, King, right? Yeah, and, and Wes Morgan, and, Wes Morgan. And, Dave, and Dave Rennie, the head, the head physio, John Rodkin. There's, there's a number of people that have been there six or seven years, you know, and last season was basically the, the expression of five or six years building with Ranieri's sort of genius on top of it. That's how I see it. But when you look at those players and you're talking about 
downing tools. I think Kasper Schmeichel's performed at the same world-class level that he performed last season. N'Golo Kante has performed even better than last season, arguably, at Chelsea. Wes Morgan and Robert Huth are just guilty of getting old, as far as I can see. I, I don't see a lack of effort from them. I just see two guys really struggling now in their, in their mid-30s to, to cope without Kante in front of them and to, to cope with the, the demands on them. So it's not fair to say that all of the players have stopped performing at the level of last season or down tools. I think it's a more subtle argument than that. Okazaki runs around as much as ever. Um, I think what... It, it, just, it, I mean, it just strikes me as like a, a weird narrative where Ranieri, I think even privately, is, is not blaming the players. I mean, he's very clear on the mm-hmm. fact that they're performing worse. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it, as you said, is some guys getting old, more games, the horrendous transfer window, um, which meant less rotation, less opportunities. But I think where he felt really let down um, is by the owners. Mm-hmm. Um, as I think everybody reported, they had a private, I don't think I'm giving you any secrets, they, they had a private meeting in January where they said that no matter what happens, even if we get relegated, you will not be sacked. And then they had the other one where they actually released a statement uh, after it, it the was silly to release that statement. What I'm wondering now, right? And we know we can all be cynical about football. And, you know, there's a guy at the Observer, David Hills, who has his said and done column where he goes and he picks out contradictory quotes and then somebody gets sacked and it's hilarious. And we all laugh and Harry Redknapp, no, I'm not signing him. And then he does. But it's a little bit different when it's the owners coming out with it, especially owners who've milked the fact that, that you know, they're so generous and they have such a sense of honor and so on. Do you know, did the statement come from the owners or was it prepared for them by the club? Do you know if, if you have any information on that? And do they kind of feel like liars right now? Because they could have just said nothing. Do you, do you mean the voter confidence statement? Yes, the unwavering support. Yeah, yeah no, that, that came from the owners. And, and this, is, this is... Why did they think that was a good idea? Because well, they, 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 that, was, that was before the Swansea game. And you yeah. said... After the Swansea game, that's when yeah. they decide to sack him. Well, I mean, and, what kind of people this, are these? Well, and this is this is a real bit of silliness for me. They they felt that that statement, and they also I think took the the squad and 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 the staff for a big sort of bonding meal. They they they, they felt that 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 would give the club a bounce, and then when the bounce didn't happen in that Swansea game, they they reacted the way they they did, and that that's that is. Silly. That's that, 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 that's very contradictory. Um, Amazing and, alternate facts here. But uh, the other thing I want to get, I'd like to get everybody on this. I, I, I think we've bought into this narrative, and this is kind of a broader point, that relegation is an absolute disaster because of the vast riches in, in the Premier League. It's in the statement as well where Lester made the point that their first and only priority this season was avoiding relegation uh, or Premier League survival is how they put it. I'm not sure it's true because if you look at the clubs who have been relegated, the ones who don't have owners who are criminals or heavily in debt or insane, vast majority of them come right back up. I'm thinking Hull. I'm thinking Burnley. I'm thinking Newcastle and Newcastle again, likely this year. West Ham. Um, If you're a well-run club, I know you're taking a risk. But if you weigh that against the damage to your reputation in coming across as bald-faced liars... Did they ever take that into account, to, 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 to your knowledge, Johnny? I, well, listen, I agree with exactly what you've outlined. Um, and the, the risk of this is that they, they still go down, so they lose the reputation and they still go down. 
I don't know what their thinking is on that. But I think speaking to people at the club, and they're not these aren't the decision makers. The one thing they will tell you about relegation is that you know it took them ten years to come back up the last time. So Leicester were traumatized by the last relegation. Well, they had different owners they had though. The Premier. They oh, had different course. owners, a different financial situation. They had they had Scowcroft. I don't yeah. believe it was me that I was in the team that took them down last. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah you personally took them yeah. down. The figures are against the idea of bouncing straight back, aren't they? I think I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I don't it, agree with Gavin. It's, on it's that. significantly less than half bounce back. Well, you know? no, but but and see, also, no, 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 Dicko, those figures are wrong though. It's not significantly less than half. It's pretty close to half. But then uh, from that, what, though... What, the bounce in, in the automatic but, promotion straight back to the... Well, automatic promotion or not, coming back up. But it has picked up in the last five back, years. If we go back over 20 years... I'm yeah, no, but let's not go back over 20 years because the big parachute payments are in the last few years, and that's what's relevant. And the other thing is the, the figures are skewed by clubs going down that clubs like Bolton that had, like, mountains of debt... QPR that were idiots... Yeah, but then QPR, of course, came back up the, the first time round. Clubs like Blackpool with with Oyston, who shouldn't have, probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. That's, I, well, I think it depends. Cardiff I mean, it, with it, with Tan and all the nonsense that followed. If, if you're in Leicester's position, you got there's a few issues. Yes, as you say, well-run clubs are in a position where they can bounce back. But in Leicester, you've got certain complications, you know, caused still with you know the, 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 the sort of glory of winning the Premier League has altered the club in a, in a way that we're seeing in the fact that they're in danger of being relegated from, from that high. It's altered the mindset of some players that, you know, sort of think that they're Champions League players, not mentioning um, any individuals, Jamie, um, and, and just, you know, that might not necessarily want to, to, to scrap in the same way. So, yes, a well-run club can recover, but a lot depends on how you've set up your wages, what expectations there are of, of certain players that they are they going to hang around. Um, you need the right manager who's going to persuade them it's worth hanging around. So there's all kinds of individual circumstances that can make a relegation traumatic or not. The fact that you were champions and you got relegated, how on earth do you then survive in the championship the following season that would the owners are right that that isn't a normal relegation oh let's look at the parachute payments let's look at how well run we are that could be utterly devastating and then every time you play any other championship team they are going to be up for it no matter what state they're in it would be an absolute mess for Leicester to be relegated well, aren't they all up for it when they play against Newcastle and because Newcastle 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 yes they are point. they uh, are up for it right. but the, the Newcastle did and not you, win the title and if you watch Leicester at the moment they look absolutely right. shocked personally I think Craig Shakespeare will be the manager through the end of the season and I think will that be a Shakespearean tragedy as though? a lot of people have suggested and again you, you probably know you probably know Shaky as they as his friends call him better than I do Johnny but the sense I get is you have somebody who's really bright, overlooked for a long time, kind of in, in Pearson's shadow, um, got his big chance when Sam called him to be England assistant, split the job, uh, or was willing to split the job, then through no fault of his own, lost the England gig because Sam had his pint of wine moment, Southgate didn't want him or wanted different assistants, and now he's there. I mean, is he going to want to work with the different manager? I don't know Shaky too well. So that that'd be. I, you know I him well know. enough to call him shaky. No, no, I, I, shaky to me means uh, a Welsh singer. But but um, <laughs> what this decision does do is it means that the players have got to stand up and it exposes them. Well, I think it exposes him now. He's got to show what what he can do because it's not just 
you know, he, he, he's been lurking behind Ranieri this season. He's always been part of a triumvirate or, or actually a bigger management group. You know, he, he, he was brought to various clubs by Nigel Pearson. And Pearson had a very collegiate style of management, despite the image. You know, Pearson had Shakespeare, Walsh, Rennie, uh, Matt Reeves in the fitness department, Paul Balsam, head of performance, and a big players group, a senior players group, and managed by you know, basically asking them what they thought on various matters and, and trying to produce that sort of consensus management. So um, Shakespeare's been part of that and obviously taking credit for some of the, the results of that. He's got to show what he can do now. And I think he, he, he so on, on, you know, on Friday, um, he clearly feels that he can do it. He's clearly got confidence uh, and he clearly feels that he's you got the dress. He's getting the behind. job because well, we've, we've been reporting and talking to Hitting yeah. with Mancini calling him out, but he is getting I, the job, isn't he? I think it's the likeliest, right. likeliest thing. But you know, if there's a couple of disasters, then then you know, who knows what the owners will think. And I think I think hitting is a is a uh, something they're looking at if if they could do a deal there. Crystal ball time. Alison, are they staying up? They are going to stay up by the skin of their teeth. Last game of the season, and Kasabian will play live, and there'll be ticker tape. <laughs> Scoey. Totally, totally agree with Alison. Yes, I'll stay up. Kasabian as well. Just. <laughs> so I tell you a good story about Kasabian. One of my claims to fame. You know when a rock band goes on Soccer AM? When yes. they're up and coming? So they've gone in, they're Leicester people. Who's your favourite player? Do you know they said? No, they didn't. Jermaine Wright. <laughs> Move on. Dick Oil, Leicester staying up. Uh, they probably are, aren't they? Um, although it'd be quite fun if it comes down to the last game. Is it uh, Bournemouth at home, I see. Um, Bournemouth at home, yes, needing needing something to stay up. That would be fun. I'd like to think this story's got a bit more drama in it yet. Johnny? Are they staying up? Yeah, they're staying up. Right. Everybody seems to agree they're staying up. All right, enough Leicester, hopefully for a long time. Uh, how about some quick hits instead? Bournemouth uh, lose at West Brom, and Eddie Howe says he needs to show leadership. Allison, did we all get a little too excited about young Eddie? Or is actually this a show of humility which shows maturity, dare I say even leadership? Well, it's not Eddie's fault that people got overexcited about him. It's not Eddie's fault that he's English. It's not Eddie's fault that people are wondering who the next Arsenal manager might be. He's never shown anything but good leadership, I think. Uh, if you look at the team he has to have got as high as got as high as ninth or eighth this season is absolutely remarkable. Despite um, all the spending and the... And the, te- the team, the team, the team does not look great. Yeah. And they do generally play better. Than, whenever I see them, they play slightly better than I'm expecting them to. Um He's being hard on himself. He's 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 going to become a better leader with time, but he's not doing anything particularly wrong at the moment, given the resources he has. We're all part of Eddie's army. Romelu Lukaku scores again for Everton, and he has now equaled Duncan Ferguson's Premier League Everton record of 60 goals. Yes, there is such a thing. Um, now, that means he's only 289 goals behind Dixie Dean's club record. Dicko, you want to talk about whether we should be appreciating Lukaku more or muse about how football was invented in 1992? Uh, I think we appreciate Lukaku, don't we? And I see breaking news that um, Raiola's told our friends at TalkSport that he's going to sign a new um, contract as well. So Everton fans uh, will be thrilled about that. No, he's, um, I-, I remember the fee looked looked steep at the time, but uh, he's, he's justifying it, I think. Sunderland were on the losing end in that Everton game, and Davy Moyes reckons that if they can find another five wins between now and the end of the season, they'll be safe. Scoey, is that a little bit like me saying that if I can only persuade the Glazers to sell me Manchester United for £500, I can sack Mourinho and hire you to replace them? 
Not really. I think it's a, it's a valid point by David Moyes. I think those bottom six or seven teams, I think five wins, 15 points, puts them all on about 35 points. Sensible talk. He's not really going to get those five wins, is he? You well, no, no, but I, th- I think he's. Would you come f- work for me? If more important, who cares about that? Would you come work for me if I bought United? I think he'd be extremely hard to work for. I would. I, I'd be a really unpleasant boss. Yeah, I think so. We were all on the Marco Silva bandwagon, but then whole go and they're held at home by Burnley, whose away record is actually really, really bad. Um, Allison, were were they a little bit unlucky? And you still a Silva believer? Um, no, not really. I mean, I think, I think, I think everyone neutral will be rooting for Hull to stay up because Marco Silva has reinvigorated them but top scorer with three goals Michael Dawson it's it's not looking good I think they'll they'll be the most attractive of the ones that go down really you think Hull are going down I do I'm going to put you in the spot with who the Sunderland and Middlesbrough Sam Allardyce was exceedingly humble before the relegation six-pointer against Middlesbrough and his players rewarded him with a 1-0 win he also had some hilarious maths in his program notes where he said that if every player gives 2% more, that's a 22% increase in performance. Um, I know Sam's maths are much better than that, so I blame whoever went and uh, ghosted his column. And I don't think Sam's going to be happy at all. Anyway, they get a 1-0 win, so you get a similar question. You're confident in Big Sam, right? As confident as I am? Dicko? His record of keeping teams up is, uh, is decent, isn't it? I think he's been um, shocked by what he found uh, at Palace and, um, well, maybe some signs that he's shaken some life into it. I did a little piece on Benteke's woes last week. It seemed to be a bit more life, so they've got a chance. They're in with a fighting chance. He's more clever than the managers around him in the table, isn't he? What do you mean, more clever? I mean, he's um, he's, he's a very interesting chapter in his book, actually, talking about his dyslexia and how... He was called an idiot at school and how much that affected him and how he still has pretty chronic uh, dyslexia and what that did for his self-confidence then. But he made was him... called an idiot in school because he was dyslexic? Would he go to school in the Middle Ages? He, he was, he, yeah, you read his autobiography, he's basically a teacher, was just, they, you know, dyslexia was not properly understood. I don't think he even bothered to take a single exam that basically says, "Not well, you know, you're an idiot, don't even bother trying. Um, and it made him, oh, I had a... A, well, pretty brutal effect on him as a kid, but um, I think he sort of tells a story about how it made him sort of determined to to find find something he was good at. Shameful period in English history. Richard Rogers, Lord Rogers, another product of English state education and one of the greatest architects, also highly dyslexic, told not to pursue his studies and told to go and be a policeman because he was quite stupid. <laughs> and he told me that story himself. Scully, you got a technical question. Harry Kane scores a hat-trick as Spurs beat up Stoke. Can you explain, from a striker's perspective, and in insightful detail, and in 20 seconds, uh, what he does really well and what makes him so good? He does everything really well. So if you look at him technically, he's very good right to left foot. Um, If you look at him in front of goal, I think he's got most finishes in his locker, is the term. He can... Bend the ball around the goalkeeper. He can slide it underneath the goalkeeper. He can link teammates up. I think he's very, very, very good. I think he's a fantastic technical footballer. He reminds me of a Del Piero. Harry Kane is Del Piero. Interesting yeah. analogy. Hadn't heard that one. Do you agree? Similar kind of the way he backs in and receives the ball to feet. And... Del Piero's about half his size. And before he got 
sort of more muscular. He was all super quick. He was all about quickness and not really a center forward. But I will watch some Del Piero on YouTube and I invite everybody to do that and see if we can we can spot the parallels with Harry Kane. Gab, I have a question for you. Do you know? It's not, it's not about how they treat dyslexia in Italy. No, it's not about that. It's about La Liga, which has been wild and wacky this weekend. So explain, please. It certainly was. Barcelona, um, they had a really tricky tie away to Atletico Madrid. Uh, Luis Enrique changed it up. He played, uh, he played three at the back. And uh, they had a real sort of gutsy, grinded out Atletico Madrid type performance. They weren't outstanding, but they got the three points thanks to a late Messi goal. And then more drama in the evening. Real Madrid, uh, fresh off their defeat to Valencia. Um, they traveled to Villarreal, best defense in La Liga. They're terrible for the first hour or so, find themselves 2-0 down. St. Gareth Bale with a header pulls one back. And then Real Madrid get it totally gifted penalty, like a crazy ricochet in the box, handball, Cristiano converts on the spot, and then they end up winning 3-2 against uh, against Villarreal, thanks to a late, late uh, Alvaro Morata header, and a lot of help from Villarreal's reserve goalkeeper, who had to come on at halftime and was terrible, because the starting goalkeeper, Sergio Asenjo, got hurt in the first half, uh, keeping out a shot from Karim Benzema. Who's going to win La Liga? Um, I think Real Madrid. Maybe four points clear. They have a game in hand. So they're in the they're in the driver's seat. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, 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 many thanks to my excellent guests, Jonathan Northcroft. Buy his book, Fearless, out now. The story of Leicester's 2015-16 season. Uh, James Scowcroft, another uh, Leicester legend, like Jonathan Northcroft. Um, probably more of an Ipswich legend, though. No. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, he'll take legend status at Ipswich. Um, Alison Rudd, who did a, an excellent job in my absence, uh, certainly uh, presenting this, got lots of plotted and great feedback. And from beautiful East Sheen in the far southwestern reaches of London, and uh, a short helicopter ride away from Matthew Syed's house, it's Matt Dickinson. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times online. It's just £12 for a 12 week trial uh you can also of course subscribe to this podcast just press that subscribe button on wherever you choose to download your podcast and if you have something nice to say leave a review on itunes if you happen to be listening on an apple device till next week bye bye the game is brought to you by the times for more information and more podcasts from the times head to thetimes.co.uk iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.